We'd like to welcome you to a new program we're trying out at Cold Steel. We call it the Surgical Companion Series because it's meant to be a more conversational format that outlines and discusses current media events and recent publications in a novel, interesting manner. Our standing members of the Companion are Amir Farouk, Kelly Vogt, Morad Hamid, and myself, with guests to come and go depending on the show. We hope to stimulate respectful and thoughtful conversation and initiatives and are really looking forward to developing it with you. Well, we'd like to welcome the listeners to the first uh, episode of the Surgical Companion on Cold Steel. Again, the goal of our of our podcast in the, in the Companion series is to have a frank conversation amongst friends from across the country from different backgrounds about uh, various topics that uh, are in fact topical. Uh, today we have uh, Morad Hamid, Kelly Vogt, Amir Farouk, and myself. And we'd like to generate a discussion and have a, have a chat um, surrounding a, a manuscript that was published in the CMAJ in April, Volume 192, Issue 15, entitled The Relation Between Surgeon Age and Postoperative Outcomes, a Population-Based Cohort Study. And we thought we'd just very briefly in two or three minutes walk through this paper and then open up for uh, what will hopefully be an interesting and um, informative discussion. So the goal of the, uh, the authors, and I, I will say up front that you know, buried in the middle of this author list is uh, two very heavy hitting folks, one being Barbara Bass, who could arguably be called, uh, you know, the U.S.'s uh, most uh, well-known um, female surgeon, and Alan Detsky, who's been an internist in Toronto for many decades and is responsible for the Detsky Perioperative Risk Index. Um, so certainly some heavy hitters, and really their goal was to evaluate the, the effect of surgeon age on post-operative outcomes in patients undergoing what they determined to be or what they defined as common surgical procedures. So they picked 25 procedures. <clears throat> they used Ontario as their denominator. They looked at those procedures between uh, 2007 and 2015. And they did really, the, honestly, the, the typical statistical analysis that you would expect. I don't think there's too much to be gleaned from it, but they looked at just over 1.1 million patients who were treated by a variety of surgeons. In fact, uh, 3,314 surgeons. Um, eight, eight, uh, the surgeons themselves, uh, their age range on them was 27 to 81 years. And they did model it as a continuous variable. However, a lot of their conclusions, as you'll probably hear in the discussion, um, come with really a, a bimodal analysis. So older than 65 years of age on the surgeon side or younger than 65 years of age. At the end of the day, and I think they certainly presented as a surprising finding, when they looked at the dichotomous over 65, under 65, they found that those that were older 65, <clears throat> in other words, patients that had been operated on a surgeon of that age, had a 7% lower odds of adverse outcomes in the post-operative period. The paper goes on to discuss <clears throat> a number of things in the interpretation and discussion component of it. And although the paper is, is not very old, uh, as I mentioned, it was in April of this year, more recently at the end of September, CMAJ essentially republished a synopsis of it in their research synopsis section. And um, as a result, it sort of fired up 
certainly in the in the West, and I would assume across the country, a fair bit of discussion. Um, and you know, I think my impression is that a lot of senior surgeons were very um, proud of, uh, rightly or wrongly, the the initial results. Um, but when they published the the synopsis, um, there was an editorial comment that I think got um, certainly some of the surgeons, senior surgeons that I've talked to, a little bit worked up, and, and maybe we'll get into that. Uh, but I, you know, I was curious more at what what you sort of thought and how you how you frame this paper in general. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Uh, it's a it's a great uh, paper and a great topic to bring up, uh, especially considering the workforce issues that that we encounter in, in the discipline. I think. The paper probably um, raises a, a lot of questions, perhaps more than it than it answers. It is intriguing and a counterintuitive result that surgeons over the age of sixty-five have uh, have less um, complications. And it maybe I could turn it back to you guys uh, to ask, like, could it be? Uh, uh, could this paper be affected a lot by selection bias, um, by patient population? And uh, how would we account for those kinds of things in 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 the um, in the interpretation of the results? Like, uh, is it a conversation starter or is this actually evidence? I love that uh, question. Conversation starter or evidence? I think you know you go back to the the concept that all observational studies, in some way, shape, or form, are hypothesis generating. I think that this raises tremendously interesting questions, and I agree with you more than it does provide us answers. I think you hit the nail on the head with your comment about the struggle we have. This paper comes with a tremendous volume of data, and that's the power of an administrative data source or linkage of administrative data sources at a population level. It would be next to impossible to do that uh, without using administrative data, or at least tremendously expensive. The downside to that, though, is that you lose granularity at the patient level and you lose granularity at the provider level even more so, at least using these types of databases. So there's, I, when I read this paper, I was left with so many questions about who were the patients that they were operating on and what, who were these surgeons that continued to be uh, operating well into, I think, I mean, they cut it off at 80, but there were, there were quite a few surgeons who were operating into their 70s how are they different than the surgeons who weren't operating into their 70s? So those are some of my big questions. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, the, the other thing that was unclear to me, and maybe I missed it despite a couple of read-throughs, but, you know, the 25 procedures, it was an interesting selection too. I mean, they had cardiothoracic surgery in there, didn't have liver surgery, for example. So there was some some bigger, I would argue, maybe less common surgical procedures put in there as well. And then, of course, the dichotomy between emergency and elective cases. You know, we, we all know that doing a four-day-in terribly scarred 2 a.m. gallbladder looks very different than, you know, the gallstone pancreatitis, um, you know, three months out in the young 20-year-old gal. Um, you're right. You lose a lot of granularity, but it's it's an interesting um, interesting set of conclusions, isn't it? There's a huge selection bias here. The the actual number of patients that were operated on uh, by those over 65 was only six percent of the total uh, number of operations. So it actually represents a very small number of the total number of operations being 
than in Ontario. I mean, having said that, they did do, uh, they did look at um, not just, you know, the dichotomous variables, but also, uh, you know, by 10-year intervals. And they also found that there seemed to be better outcomes. And their, their graphs are actually quite remarkable. Like, you can see these beautiful curves, like someone, you know, just drew them with their hand. Like, it's actually kind of amazing. But, uh, I mean, the key thing is that you just can't control for the complexity um, of these cases. And, uh, you know, may, may, maybe there is something to the idea that older surgeons um, are better able to figure out who needs an operation. And maybe, maybe older surgeons become a bit more selective and, and are just not as willing to offer operations uh, that maybe they would do otherwise. I, again, I mean, it, this is uh, more hypothesis generating than actual evidence, as, as you, you've all said. One of the things that I always think about when we do these kinds of studies is to what end, right? So there, we, you know, Ahmed Karamudin, one of the colorectal surgeons, and I uh, recently um, had a letter to the editor or a comment published in Annals about a, a study done by, again, some heavy hitters um, in the U.S., Justin Dimmick, um, Ashish Jha, about the outcomes of international medical graduates and, um, uh, and their surgical outcomes. And basically that they found that there was no difference for IMGs versus U.S. graduates. But then, you know, our, our comment was basically that to what end are we doing these studies, right? So um, I guess one, even if let's say you accepted their, the conclusions of this study at face value, how would that change uh, what we do now? I mean, they, they talk about in their discussion about um, not mandating age cutoffs or uh, forced retirements for surgeons. But I don't think, as far as I'm aware, that's actually a policy anywhere. So I, I also have to ask the question how this would actually change our policy and, and what we would do differently, um, even if the conclusions of the study were things that we all accepted. I think you have two great points there, you know, Amir. The, the first one was, was something that I thought deeply about as well. And we know at least in certainly in, in big in the big case world uh, and i assume that extends you know clearly beyond hpb surgery and to places like cardiothoracic surgery for example that as surgeons get older they do get more conservative they do not push as hard and there's lots of psychological reasons for that and and experience is 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 a big one you know as a as a broad moniker but um you know, the reality is you probably want a mix of different age groups within the four, six, eight person teams that do these really complex operations. So I think the patient selection is going to be a huge part of this that, of course, there's no way to address. I'm curious, Morad, from, from your point of view as a, as a section or a division head, um, in relation to Amir's um, second comment, uh, how do you frame this in terms of maybe... UBC as a as a retirement policy or a transition policy or a, um, just just in general is does it have any application to to how you think and how you run your group? You know, I think the comments that that you and Kelly and Amir made are are actually influencing me uh, in real time right now. Uh, uh, I think we could talk so much about. What happens to us as we age? Does our knowledge grow? Uh, does our mental acuity stay the same? Does our stamina change? Does it fall off sharply after we reach 65? Um, fact that people are getting healthier and fitter, uh, does that mean that we 
we our, our growth continues on bef you know beyond how it used to be um, so th these are all fascinating things that we could talk about all day um, but Chad what you said about teams and you know you know uh, I, I love talking about diversity of teams, um, but it's it's so it's such an interesting idea that it, maybe if we're older, our judgment maybe improves. Maybe we get a little conservative or maybe risk averse. Who knows? Maybe that's true. If it is true, maybe that's a good influence to have in team-based care, like a diversity of perspectives on on a case. You know, like when we discuss cases in our morning report, complex ACS cases. Um, it's great to have perspectives in the room about would you operate or would you not? Would you be aggressive or would you not? And I, I think that the approaches are more personal than related to age. Um, and uh, to me, I think maybe a study like this highlights that, uh, that we all have valuable perspectives and uh, that, uh, that everybody brings something different to the table and everybody you know, has a different sort of path. Um, so, like Kelly said, it's a, it's a, it raises a bewildering number of questions, but maybe one point could be that uh, it's just not easy to, to assess what, what skills or intangible things somebody brings to a conversation about patient care. Yeah, it's, it's totally true. You, you know, Kelly, in, in, in London, you have lots of great senior voices. Um, you know, Ken Leslie comes to mind immediately, but there's certainly many, many others, Vivian and, and, and a whole host of, of folks. Uh, how do you think they would see this and how, how do they influence sort of group think in London, for example? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. So we actually discussed this paper in our journal club um, right after it came out. And Ken Leslie's voice is probably the loudest one at the table. And he raised a point that I was, I was just going to actually tie to what Morad had to say, which is maybe what this paper shows us is that surgeons are smart about when they stop operating. Because what we, we see in this paper is there's, there's attrition, right? We lose surgeons as they choose to retire, and they're not captured in this data. So maybe what we're seeing is as surgeons get older, they get smarter, not only about what, pa what patients they're choosing, what cases they're doing, the decisions that they're making, but also maybe they get smarter about when their time has come and they should no longer be operating. So I think that was a really interesting point that came out um, in our discussions and certainly what I know Ken took away at least in part from this paper. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, we Amir and I were lucky to interview Henry Pitt, who is a very senior surgeon in the U.S. As you guys know, and he's one of the sharpest minds I can I can think of. And you know, not to not to pump the the tires on on the cold steel interviews, but you know, in the in the next couple of weeks, we're going to interview Rick Buckley, who's one of has been one of Canada's preeminent orthopedic trauma surgeons for a long time, and and he has a passion about essentially progressive retirement and, and when it's time and, and how you know it's time and how not to hang on too long. But, you know, I don't know what you guys think. It's great, Kelly, when, when folks have that insight, but I imagine, Morad, it's probably pretty difficult to deal with the small percentage of folks maybe who don't and, and who, are, who are not meeting the, the trends of, of benefit that this paper would show us and maybe are struggling. How, how do you deal with those folks or how do you address that scenario? I think what Kelly said and, and what Ken said is, is, is amazingly true that surgeons are smart about the pace of their work and 
when to, when and how to cut back and um, occasionally people don't have that insight um, and in that case I think it's very important to have um, like a culture that su supports um, open communication um, and um, uh, where people feel secure to um, uh, to uh, talk to each other about um, about sensitive issues and also in the background um, to, to create a surgical culture that uh, that measures um, uh, that measures performance well uh, from pa from a patient perspective from provider perspective um, where where I think we haven't quite reached a point where we're measuring outcomes and uh, and performance um, in in granular enough detail uh, to influence these conversations like even the best QI programs probably can't really distinguish surgeon performance that well or account for um, uh, variability in case mix but I think we do have to measure and uh, try to uh, adjust for complexity and um, and be transparent about reporting performance. So I think maybe a combination of having a culture that supports surgeons and gets the best out of them and makes them realize their full potential, um, but also that measures performance and holds us accountable for, for the critical work that we do and um, that, that sort of honors that commitment that we have to our patient population. Oh, that's, so, that's so well said. Uh, Amir, I have a particular question for you. You, you know, I, I just reviewed a, a manuscript that talked about um, focusing on different types of contributions from senior and or retiring surgeons to the surgical profession. And, and mostly what they were talking about was the ability of senior surgeons to educate. And, and they looked at some performance and educational metrics and um, you know, they were absolutely superb and, and you could argue oh, it's, maybe they're less busy or maybe they're more experienced, whatever the rationale was, you know, the, the, their student body, their targets absolutely love them. And, you know, to, to a, a greater or lesser extent, I think you and I both got a flavor of that with Jeff Blair in the, in the last uh, interview from, from last week. Um, you know, there, there's somebody that's retired and still has a massive passion to teach and is, by all accounts, superb at it. What, what's your sense of that? I can tell you that I call my dad and my grandfather, who are both surgeons, all the time. And, you know, despite the fact that supposedly I'm all up to date on the evidence and I just studied for my real college exam and I'm supposed to be all whipper smart and know what to do about everything, I find their advice invaluable. And some of the best um, teachers that I even had in medical school in terms of our anatomy teaching and all those kinds of things were retired surgeons. So I, there's no question that we underutilize the expertise of senior colleagues. And um, there's such a there's such a powerful resource. Um, and it's just a pleasure to, to if you ever get to ch the chance to have them <laughs> assist you, it's such an amazing um, experience to have. And so, you know, I, I keep trying to tell my grandfather who, uh, um, you know, hasn't been involved as much with the undergraduate medical education in Edmonton to, you know, come back and teach some anatomy and all those things because, you know, I benefit from him all the time. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I had the privilege of being a visiting professor at Memorial Sloan Kettering and I happened to hit the day that Leslie Bloomgart, uh, obviously the famous liver surgeon, uh, was there and he's there on that given day every single week doing a didactic hour to two hours of teaching. And the amount of wisdom that I picked up 
you know, in that hour and a half, say, was unparalleled almost ever. It it was remarkable. I'm curious in Vancouver or London or anywhere that you guys know of, do do either of you have a, a program where this is more formalized or more structured or is it just sort of here and there uh, whenever possible? So in London, I would say it's really a part of our culture uh, that this is happening, but there is not a, a formal structure, at least in general surgery. Some of the other programs in London do have sort of retired surgeons routinely assisting, and I think that's spectacular. But within our general surgery division, it does happen very organically that our most senior surgeons are often the one, you know, you're running into a little bit of trouble or a case is difficult and you just call them in and they're there because of the collegiality and because of the opportunities that exist. And, and, you know, the smart junior surgeon is the one who picks up the phone and makes that phone call similar to what Amir was talking about. Uh, but in answer to your specific question, nothing formal. Uh, and nothing formal uh, here um, in Vancouver either, Chad, but uh, this conversation makes me, realize that there totally should be. Yeah, it's true. You you wonder if if we shouldn't be uh, utilizing this amazing resource more and more frequently, certainly more than we are. I'm just curious, I'll I'll ask you guys one more question and then then maybe I'll I'll zip it for a bit. But, uh, you know, I'm curious what what you thought in particular about the editor's comment in the synopsis that was just republished in September. And maybe for the the listeners, I'll just uh, take... 60 seconds here and read it. Um, The editor says the findings of the study may seem counterintuitive, particularly the finding that surgeons of older age, um, older than the standard retirement of 65 years, were less likely to have adverse post-operative outcomes than those who were operated on by surgeons younger than 65 years of age. He says, however, we shouldn't forget that surgery is a team activity Better outcomes may reflect the mutual support and performance of a great team, possibly refined over years of working together, rather than the skills of a single individual within it. What, what, how do you guys take that, that comment? And again, I preface it by saying I know that there was some people that were a little bit upset about it. Um, certainly, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys are maybe more lucky in London and, and Vancouver than in Calgary, but we rarely have sort of the same team uh, like a like a male clinic would uh, operating with a surgeon over years per se um, I don't know what do you guys think I agree with you I mean I think that would be absolutely the exception and not the rule um, from a team perspective I my when I read that sort of editorial comment I wondered if it was a bit of a nod to some of the shortcomings that we've identified with this study and not necessarily shortcomings but some of the areas that have made us question sort of what exactly the findings are showing us as opposed to being, uh, you know, negative against the older surgeons. I wonder if that was sort of where it came from when I first read it. Chad, for, from my standpoint, I, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that's exactly it. Uh, that, that might've exactly been their intent. Um, you know, I, I, I'm actually, my uh, thoughts about team teamwork and surgery are, are still evolving. Like, I do care a lot about the team, um, and I can't think of a single day that I don't benefit from the expertise of my team, that my team doesn't save me, that a colleague doesn't come in and make an important point uh, that, that changes the, the, the tide of a case, um, whether it's in the, uh, in the operating room or, or in the ICU uh, or in the trauma bay, the, the team matters a lot. 
but also we know that uh, the uh, the technical uh, act of operating matters a lot as well. And um, uh, we sometimes forget with a big team-based approach to, to performance improvement, um, we forget that the central act of surgical care is in the operating room. And uh, so um, I think there, these are both complementary forces, uh, I think, and they, there is some equilibrium between, um, you know, a team-based effort and individual performance. And um, so who knows? I think, I think uh, that, that the, the resilience of the team and the adaptability of the team uh, probably is a result of great outcomes for surgeons and probably does buffer complications a little bit. But I think the act of, the technical act of operating does definitely impact outcome. What do you think, Chad? You've been asking does that make all the sense? questions. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't know, Kelly. To be to be fair with you, my, I mean, my overriding take-home message, uh, as tangential as it may seem to this manuscript, is that, you know, I would support what Morad had said, which is that, you know, a, a team is so critically important, and I, I, my, if I'm honest about it, when I when I think of these concepts, I think back to a paper that I was lucky enough to essentially coordinate that looked at um, some very well-known high-volume pancreas surgeons uh, that together had done over 10,000 Whipples. And I sort of asked them in the, in the, in the central, the central tenet of it was, how do you prevent bleeding technically? What are the things that you think about before, during, and after, basically? And the number one answer across all of these extremely well-known surgeons from all over the world was the same. And they didn't talk to each other at all. It was operate with your partners, operate with them a lot, and call them often. And I, I thought, wow, like that's an unbelievable comment. And I think, as you, I think we've all sort of insinuated, that's really probably what this is about. It's about mixing up age, as Morad says, diversity in your teams, obviously beyond age. Age is just one, one factor, clearly. But um, we, we need that mixture of personalities and age and gender and race and experience and diversity and training. You know, we don't all, all we should not be hiring the, the fellows that we train. We want them to go to all these different places. And that, that heterogeneity, I think, is what keeps us all out of trouble. I don't know. What do you guys think? That I mean, that that's my take home from it for sure. You know, isn't it interesting that we're going from talking about standardizing everything in surgery and making it like a factory in terms of reducing variation to saying that variation um, it, in perspective and in training is actually um, a key element of performance and resilience. It's it's it's. I think it's an interest, very interesting evolution that kind of recognizes how complex this. Uh, uh, surgical systems are. But it's what makes them adaptable. And I think, you know, as much as we try to aim for homogeneity in processes and ideally homogeneity in outcome, you have to recognize that what we do is a heterogeneous thing. You can't predict what's going to happen. And so you need the, the backups. And, and I couldn't agree more about the team aspect in that regard. Amir, I think you get the final comment. It just highlights for me all the things that make surgery a fantastic 
career. It's there's there's so many different aspects of it that we just have to pay attention to um, from how we perform technically. You know, and we know all the work that has been done to show how technical skills really do co- correlate with outcomes. And and I'll just say one thing with that editorial comment. I mean, I don't think it's counterintuitive for anyone who's ever stepped in the operating room or worked in the operating room. It is definitely uh, not counterintuitive that older surgeons would have good outcomes. It's not, it's not just uh, about your steadiness of your hands. It's all of the other things that you bring to the table. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think there's so much that we could do um, to improve ourselves technically and individually and uh, as a system. And, and I think we just need to keep on thinking about ways that we can do that. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.